Good evening. Um, we're going to be reading from two different passages tonight in John and 1 John. Um, so let's begin. Uh, in John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, now let's turn to page 1021, um, to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Thank you, EJ, for reading. Please do keep that passage open uh, in front of you. And let me add my welcome to Chalmers this evening. It's lovely to see you here with us. Um, I'm going to pray as we come to God's word um, for his help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you've made yourself known in the person of Jesus Christ. Please, as we go through this book over the coming minutes and coming weeks, please would you help us to grow in joy and assurance of that fact. Because we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we are going to look at those um, few verses at the start of 1 John that we uh, have just read. Uh, and you'll see on the outline how we're going to tackle those verses. But just to warn you, I am going to spend a bit of time before we get into that, giving us a, a feel for the book as a whole, because this is a new series, a new book of the Bible for us to be in. Um, so I thought I'd give us a bit of orientation. So if you feel like the introduction la lasts a while, don't panic. Um, the points won't last that long. So we're in a letter written by John, the same John who wrote John's Gospel that we just read as our first reading. He's one of Jesus' closest friends, and disciples, and one of his apostles, his chosen spokesman. He's a really good person to listen to 
if you want to actually know Jesus, the real Jesus, the Jesus of history. John also wrote the uh, book of Revelation and another couple of letters. To get us into this letter, I want us to think about joy tonight. It's there in verse 4, isn't it, of 1 John, uh, page 1021. We are writing these things, verse 4, so that our joy may be complete. At least part of the reason for writing this letter is to increase joy, to, to kind of fill out joy, for our joy to be full. The hour there, I think, is, is all Christians and John. It's a kind of inclusive, our, uh, our joy. Now, I realize we might not think about growing in joy that often in the Christian life. Some of us may hold in our head a kind of schema that says it's suffering now, joy later when Jesus comes. That's not actually true, though. There is a sense in which there's suffering now, glory later, but joy is available in both stages. Let me just prove that to you. We've just finished a series looking at God the Holy Spirit. The last two weeks were on the blessing of God the Spirit living in our hearts, producing fruit in our hearts. And in Galatians 5, two weeks ago, what is the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives when we choose to walk by Him and not by the flesh? Well, here's the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Self-control, faithfulness. Likewise, in Romans, we did see last week that that there's a lot of groaning in the Christian life, spirit-fueled groaning, actually, as we endure this broken, dying world and broken, dying bodies. There's plenty of groaning. It's all over Romans 8, as we saw. But there's also plenty of joy. Same book, Romans, later, chapter 14 Paul says this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He prays, a chapter later, 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And I could go on and on and on. Colossians, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, there's the groaning, and patience with joy. It's Colossians 1. Or James, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What's striking about that collection of mentions of joy in the Christian life is that it's joy now, and joy in and amongst suffering. The Bible doesn't pretend that the world is all sweetless in life, free from grief and pain and trauma, no. But the Bible does say there's genuine, supernatural joy available for Christians, even in the midst of groaning, suffering. We can know joy. Such is the wonder of what the gospel has brought into our lives as we're drawn into relationship with the living God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's actual joy available. Now, some of us do know that steady assurance. Some of us have it in our hearts right now, joy in the Lord despite circumstances. Sometimes when people are looking in on Christianity, that's one of the attractive things. What is it that makes you tick? How come you're not just always going up and down with circumstances? What keeps you steady? How can you be thankful when it's hard? Some of us can testify for that right now, but of course, some of us really don't experience that right now. 
For some of us, joy feels a long way away. Here's a question to ponder for those of us who are Christians here. What do you find to be joy-sapping in the Christian life? So over your time as a Christian, what, what has kind of sapped your joy? There are probably as many factors as there are people in the room. Exhaustion, weariness, illness, physical illness, mental illness, stress, trauma, grief, bereavement, overwork, mistreatment at the hands of others, challenging family relationships, whether children or parents or spouses or wider family, shattered hopes, loneliness. I mean, there's all kinds of suffering, isn't there? And in this groaning world, some of those things can make us feel flat emotionally, numb, fill our hearts with sorrow and sadness. And I do want to be clear, God's word doesn't doesn't pretend that the world isn't hard. Jesus wept in this world at the graveside of a friend as he approached Jerusalem knowing it it would reject him. Church isn't a place for plastic smiles. But alongside his tears, Jesus had a joy. He modeled a joy because he knew the Father and God the Holy Spirit. All of those New Testament references to joy I read out, they're actually all in the context of suffering. So it's not a kind of, joy isn't a kind of just always bouncing off the walls, happy and light and chirpy, like kind of Ned Flanders in The Simpsons, if you know that character. Kind of hip, hip, hooray, it's another day. Jesus was a man of sorrows and yet knew genuine joy. And we can too, because we know the Father. God, the, God is our Father. We know the Spirit as our helper. We know the Lord Jesus as our mediator. We do actually have genuine reasons to rejoice in a dark, painful world. Unless we lose our confidence that we know God. If we lose our gospel confidence, if we lose our assurance that God is really there, that we are really with him, well, that would be the greatest joy sapper of all. If we started to doubt that the gospel actually opens up the gates of eternal life, has qualified us to enter them at Jesus' expense, and is transforming us at the moment to one day be free and perfect in his new creation. If we lose confidence, we've been adopted as God's children, well then pretty soon joy will be well and truly gone. And that brings us to the people that John is writing this letter to. These are people in danger of a wobble, a serious wobble. They're wobbling about whether they really do know God, belong to God, have eternal life. And so Paul needs to write to them so that their joy would be complete. Just turn to the end of the book, chapter 5, verse 13. We've read the first reason he gives for writing in verse 4. Let's read the last one he gives for his writing. So chapter 5, verse 13. He tells us a lot of times why he's writing, but this is the last one, I think in lots of ways, a summary one. Chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John is writing to reassure Christians 
that they really do have eternal life in Jesus Christ. He thinks that knowing that with full assurance is what will complete their joy and his. Let me put it another way. John's gospel, as we read in the first reading, was written so that people can have eternal life by believing in Jesus. John's letter, the first letter here, is written so that we know we have eternal life if we've believed in Jesus. Does that make sense? Here's some evidence so you can believe in Jesus and have eternal life, John's gospel. The letter says, I'm writing so you know you have eternal life. I'm writing for glad assurance, joyful assurance that you really do know God, that you really have a living relationship with him through Jesus, that you really can rejoice in that, have joy and assurance in that, even in the hardest of times. It's why if you're still in chapter 5, verse 13, the very next verse is about the confidence we can have towards God. And verse 15, that we can know he hears our prayers. Or just turn on to chapter 5, verse 20, right near the end of the book. Chapter 5, verse 20. In this last bit, there's so many repetitions of we know, we know, we know. And listen to this, verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John's going to be addressing us over the coming weeks of this series so that we can know we have eternal life, so we can know we know God, because there's nothing more joy-sapping than just starting to doubt whether the message we've believed in and the church community we're part of and the living relationship we thought we had with an unseen God, or just starting to doubt, is that all really real? Or is this just another religious building? with another man-made belief system. You can endure a lot if you know you know the living God. But as soon as that Christian assurance goes, or Christian joy goes very quickly. So there's the aim of the letter, joyful assurance. Just before we get into the first few verses, though, I've got one other thing to notice, which is to ask the question, why did these Christians need assuring? Why were they having a wobble? I mean, we all have occasional wobbles, but why were they having it en masse that it needed a kind of letter from the Apostle John? What, what precisely was sapping their assurance and confidence and joy? Well, that brings us to the situation on the ground. So have a look at chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. Thank you for the rustling. I do like a rustle. So you can check I'm not just making it up. <laughs> chapter 2, verse 19. Here John describes a group who have left the church and left the apostles' teaching of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are 
they all are not of us. A very unnerving thing had happened to these believers. A chunk of them had left. And actually, if it wasn't just unnerving enough that, that some had walked out on the church and walked out on the gospel, they're actually trying to persuade people to go with them. Have a look, verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. There are two types of false teachers. Some are visitors. Some come from within. Paul warned the elders of Ephesus that would be true. There will be wolves who come from without, and there will be some that come from within. And here, a group from within the church has departed, not just from the church, but from the truth, and is trying to deceive those who remain, trying to persuade them to join them, convince them they're missing out, that they've missed the point. Actually, this spiritual shift of tack is actually the right one, that God is with them. Can you imagine how unnerving that would be? We don't actually know how long these people were around the church, how respected they were. Were they elders? Were they small group leaders, youth leaders? Were they just really persuasive personalities? Or had they been around for years? Kind of served in the same summer camps on the CU committees? We don't know that. But we do know their departure was a huge deal for those who remained. Caused them to wobble. So then, back to that opening question. What what can be joy-sapping in the Christian life, well, how about a church split over gospel issues? I remember hearing someone I'd, I'd worked at with, actually, at a church um, a, a while back who had walked away from the gospel, walked away from his wife and, and the gospel. That was one person, and it shook me. And here there's a whole group departed. A number of us here know how painful it feels to experience that wrench in relationships, in our hearts, when people we know shift in what they believe the gospel actually is. It's been happening in major denominations in the West for a while now, and it is unsettling to those who don't move doctrinally. Some here will have felt that in a local church setting, setting where long-standing friendships and relationships get fractured. It is different from false teaching that comes from outside. Both are dangerous, but this one is, I think, more painful. It's more joy-sapping, especially if we find ourselves wobbling and thinking, well, then who, who actually is right here? Now, we don't know exactly what the departed people were teaching, but it looks like they were poking at some of the vulnerable spots in a Christian or a church's confidence. First off, it seems like they were claiming some kind of special knowledge or insight into God. A kind of, you're missing out, we're more in tune with God. We've moved beyond those basics. You'll still hear that today. There are the kind of old-fashioned evangelical gospel. It's fine as far as it goes. It is quite narrow, though. We're more open-minded. We're more in tune with God, the Holy Spirit, His leading, as we grow in our knowledge. No wonder chapter 2, verse 20, just after this warning about them, 
John reassures this church. You have been anointed. Sorry, chapter 3, verse 20. No, I do mean, hang on. Sorry, I do mean 2.20. 2 verse 20. You have been anointed by the Holy One. That's the Holy Spirit. You have this Holy Spirit. And listen to this. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. He's saying, don't have your joy sapped. However clever their arguments sound, however intimidating their claims to higher knowledge and better spirituality, well, actually, you do know the truth and you do have the Holy Spirit if you're trusting in Jesus. Likewise, they pick another weak spot often in Christians, which is the battle with sin. We'll see more of this next week. Uh, but it seems like they, they, um, uh, they're claiming a higher victory over sin in their lives and not making a big deal of Jesus coming in the flesh to die on the cross for our sins. To put it another way, they're not that keen on the cross-bound Christ. That Jesus would have to take on flesh to die in our place to pay for sin. And again, that can be a weak spot for Christians. Because as we heard in Galatians and Romans, who of us wouldn't love more victory over sin? Who of us who have the Holy Spirit is not conscious of ways in which we wish we could grow in holiness? And so here's this group that leaves the church and says actually they do have the answers, better answers, better knowledge of God, more in tune with the Holy Spirit, more successful over sin. I hope we can see why that might be unnerving, why it might cause a wobble in a church family. And I hope we can see why John says again and again in this book, you do know God. You do know God. If you know Jesus, you do know God. I won't read them all, but just look at chapter 2, verse 12. This is our last cross-reference, and then we're, then we're going to get into the first three verses. Chapter 2, verse 12. Another set of explanations of why he's writing. And just li- listen to the reassurance in these words. Chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for Jesus' name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. You do know God. You are forgiven. It's a letter full of joyful assurance. Okay, let's dive into verses 1 to 3. I hope that's given you a taster. I hope that's given you something to pray for the coming weeks and a reason to turn up if you weren't sure about 1 John. This is a letter to grow our joy and grow our assurance that we know God. It'd be great to pray that's happening. Um, it's worth saying sometimes when people actually read 1 John, and I don't know if you've had this experience previously, sometimes we don't feel all that assured when we read it. Um, Sometimes we read it like it's a kind of set of exam questions and we have to get a certain score, personally, individually, and we're wondering kind of, oh, am I high enough on the scoreboard to really count as a proper Christian? I don't think that's the point of the book at all. 
It's not about me individually working out, kind of, am I a good enough Christian in this group? No, it's about two very different groups of Christians. It's how you discern between a real church, the people who know God, and those who've wandered. And the very foundation of whether we know God or not is there in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1. So let me read them again. Uh, it's been a while. Let me read from chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's quite a sentence, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, it's hard enough to read, let alone get our heads around. Um, It can be a bit confusing, partly, I think, because John just piles up so many phrases to describe what he's talking about, Um, partly because it's back to front. Uh, So we're kind of really waiting for the verb, the main verb, which comes in verse 3, we proclaim to you all this stuff from chapter 1 and 2. This is from verses 1 and 2. But I think the biggest reason it's a bit of a confusing start to the letter is because who's he talking about? He doesn't actually use the name. He's talking about Jesus Christ, but he doesn't use his name. It's definitely talking about Jesus, because who else did John and the other apostles see and hear and touch with their hands? Verse 1. Who was also there in the beginning? Verse 1. Or with the Father? Verse 2. And then made manifest to them. And who else? Verse 3. Has been proclaimed to the church. So we're definitely talking about Jesus. But John has a poetic style, and he wants us to lift our gaze about who this Jesus actually is. Not just some guy teaching religion, not just another spiritual guru, but divine, eternal life himself come to earth. And this is our first point. And the points will be brief. Number one, we apostles saw, heard, and touched eternal life himself. Each of our points is going to be a kind of link in the chain of this epic sentence. Uh, It's a chain that runs from God through the apostles, the eyewitnesses, and connects Christians, us, at the end, to God the Father. And the first link in the chain is this. Verse one, we apostles saw, heard, and touched eternal life himself. I wonder if you noticed, as I read, all the times that the word we, or are, keep being repeated. And that we is not we Christians, it is very specifically we apostles, these chosen eyewitness spokesmen who literally witnessed Jesus firsthand. So that which was from the beginning, we have heard, we have seen, we looked upon, and have touched with our hands. He says it a lot, we could carry on. Why is that important? Well, he's saying, listen to us. We were there. We were in the room 
when Thomas doubted. And Jesus said, okay then, Thomas. Here you go. Have a poke. Have a look at the side. They saw it. They saw him in the flesh, quite literally. We saw him. We heard him. We even touched him. John 20. I think thinking about John's gospel also helps us understand what he means by eternal life here. This life that was from the beginning. This life that was made manifest and they were able to touch him. What kind of life are we talking about here? I think two things. One, eternal life and then indestructible life. First off, life eternal. What he's saying is that God the Son, the eternal Son, who was there from before the beginning of the world, before creation, was there with the Father and the eternal Spirit. That life, that person, took on flesh, took on a human nature, walked the earth as a human being, and we saw him with eyes and and heard him with ears. Our actual senses, we touched him. We know he's real. We touched him. The one who from eternity past was in perfect loving communion with the Father and the Spirit. The one who in John's gospel could say, before Abraham was, I am. That one, the eternal son, came to earth and got to know us, the apostles, even called us his friends. I mean, it's just an extraordinary thing when eternal life stepped onto the planet. But I think it's not just eternal life. I think it's also John 20, kind of resurrection life or indestructible life because they touched the risen Jesus himself, the one who definitely died and was definitely put in a tomb, the one who beat the grave, smashed death to pieces, proved that death is not the end of humanity, the Jesus of indestructible life. We saw him, heard him, touched him. That's the first link in the chain. That's point one. Secondly, though, happily, they didn't keep the news to themselves. I mean, how could you, really? Um, I was trying to think up a claim to fame that I could talk about. I'm running out of claims to fame. uh, Jesse points out I have used some of them in sermons before. Um, Here's a really bad one. Uh, A guy I was a student with... um, is now a Labour politician. I think he might actually be a shadow minister, I don't really know. But um, I remember the first time when he did like student politics, he wanted to be the, the kind of president of one of the student bodies. And even at the time, everyone was like, whoa, this guy's keen, like really keen on politics. Um, and there's something in me that wants to tell people that. I don't know why, like it's not that interesting, is it, realistically? Obviously, I haven't had a very interesting life. But, <laughs> but the apostles actually saw eternal life, indestructible, risen life in the flesh. Of course they didn't want to keep it to themselves. I mean, Jesus told them to proclaim it, but how could you not? This letter actually comes quite late uh, in the New Testament. Um, It's likely that most, if not all, of the other apostles have been martyred by the time John writes this. But it didn't stop them speaking If you're looking in on Christian things, I think it's one of the most persuasive reasons to take it seriously. These men had nothing to gain for what they taught, everything to lose. 
Almost all of them lost their lives because of it. No amount of pressure, social, religious, governmental, violent, would change their message about what they saw because they witnessed eternal life himself. And then point two, they proclaimed what they witnessed to you. Here, eyewitness experience turns to eyewitness testimony, proclaiming what they've seen and heard. And this is where Christians fit in. Uh, The Christians that John was writing to back then and the ones sitting in here that he's writing to tonight in Edinburgh. See, neither his first readers nor us have met Jesus, not in the flesh, that is. He came to earth at a particular time and place. Only some human beings had the privilege of being there. But do you remember what Jesus said in our first reading, John 20, just after proving himself to Thomas and the apostles? He says this, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Which is us. That's where we fit in. And it's John's readers as well. It's an amazing thing, actually, as Jesus was there in in that upper room with the disciples, he had his eye on generations to come, generations like ours. John wrote his gospel so that people like us might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so have life in his name. And then he wrote this letter to tell us if you've listened to those words of the apostles, if you've listened to John's gospel and believed it, or Luke's gospel, or Mark, or Matthew, well, then you can know for certain that you have life with the living God, eternal life. And this is the third link in the chain. So the apostles saw, heard, touched eternal life himself. Then they proclaimed what they'd witnessed to you, so that, point three, through their testimony, we Christians really do know God. That completes the flow, the kind of all the links in the chain. The eternal life that was with the Father in eternity was made manifest, made clear, came to earth in space-time history, made himself known to the apostles so that they could proclaim him to us that we might know God. Just look at verse 3, how he puts it. Sorry, that should be verse 3 on the handout, not verse 4. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship. And then I would really expect the next two words to be with God, wouldn't you? <laughs> We've seen this, we proclaim it to you, so that you too also you so that you too may have fellowship with I'd really expect God there. Actually, John wants to make it clear that it's through fellowship with these apostles that then we're brought into fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Striking that, he kind of inserts him and the apostles in in the gap there. Why would he be making such a big deal of that? I mean, the whole ethos of Christian teachers is that we should become less so that Jesus becomes more. It's not about us. So why is he making such a big deal of us just there, fellowship with us? Because true fellowship with God is only possible through the witness of the apostles to Jesus. 
I think that's the biggest thing I'm probably saying tonight. So if you are zoning out, zone back in, let me just say it one more time. True fellowship with God is only possible through the true witness of the apostles. Their message, their words, connect people with the real Jesus. That's not to say that our relationship is second-hand, that really we're in relationship with a book and they had relationship with God. No, remember chapter 2, verse 13? I'm writing to you, uh, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning, or the end of that verse. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. So we do have direct communion with God, Father, Son, Spirit, but we have it through the witness of the apostles to Jesus. Let me put it another way around, because I think this is the point John's really saying. If you were to wander away from the gospel of the apostles, the message that they proclaimed about the real Jesus, that they saw and heard and touched, well, then you can have no confidence. No confidence in terms of fellowship with the Father and the Son, standing with God, forgiveness. Assurance is broken if we depart from their testimony. I mean, that sounds pretty strong, doesn't it? Pretty blunt. And as we think through the implications, it is pretty strong. But that is what John's saying. The point of connection with the real Jesus of eternity and the Jesus of history is them. And so to walk away from them for an alternative, as the departed group have done in this church, is to walk towards an idol. And... Idol is not too strong a word. The very last words of this letter, after stating that Jesus is the true God and eternal life, the very last words of the letter are, chapter 5, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And often that can come as a bit of a surprise. There hasn't been really any talk about statues or that kind of idol in the book. I think the point is, there's one true Jesus, and you can know him because he was witnessed. But there's a lot of alternative Jesuses out there, like the ones that the departive have turned to, ones that will deny the cross, deny the seriousness of sin. It's time to draw to a close. I said this church is in danger of a wobble perhaps because the ideas of this departed group are, are quite appealing, quite deceptive. They niggle at things where the Christians don't feel confident. Perhaps also just because they have relationships with some of these people. They went out from us. But John wants them to be sure that there's one place to know that you know God. That's the testimony of the apostles to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we go on in this book, John is going to help us know what the real people of God look like. And it's one of my prayers, and I hope, I hope we'll pray it together. It's one of my prayers for us as a church that whatever happens to us over the coming years and decades, 
that we never lose confidence in the message of Jesus that's revealed in the Bible. There's a lot of pressure on that. I mean, there always is, but there is at the moment in our culture. But that is where eternal life and living relationship with God is to be found. It's actually where joy is to be found, even in the ups and downs of life. And likewise for us as individuals, uh, many of us will move on from, um, from this church family uh, over the years, whether from work or housing or study, or there's lots of reasons, aren't there? It'd be a great thing to pray, even now, that we would seek to belong to a church community defined by listening to the apostles about Jesus. And when I say the apostles, I do mean listening to their message about Jesus. There are lots of churches, actually, and denominations that that claim to be connected into the apostles somehow. Sometimes it's through historical ties. Sometimes it's through a a supposed unbroken chain of kind of laying on of hands. Someone got uh, zapped by an apostle, and so it's carried on. Sometimes it's the traditions that have kind of carried on from the apostles through the church, the traditions of teaching. But the actual apostle, John, says, the message we proclaimed about Jesus, that's what you got to stick with. That's how you can know you know the Father. That's how your joy can be complete in a painful world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this letter. Thank you for your, um, your awareness of what we're like, that we do wobble, that our joy can waver, that our, our assurance can waver. There are times we can even question, do, do we actually know you? And so we thank you for one, John, and we thank you even tonight for the start of seeing how we can have real confidence through the Lord Jesus Christ and the testimony you provided through these apostles. Pray for anyone here who has not yet trusted in Jesus, that you give them a hunger to read these words, to read the eyewitness accounts. And for those of us who have, Lord, whatever we're going through, however much we had to drag ourselves here tonight, please help us to have joy in knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen.